you're a founder building a company, you're going to eventually have to start hiring executives to help you scale. The people you bring into your leadership team can make or break your startup. I'm Nigel Robinson with Build Talent, and in each episode, we'll be speaking with a founder or expert as we discuss the art and science of hiring leaders, why it matters, and how you can keep up. Welcome to the Gradients Podcast. Welcome to the Gradients Podcast. We're here with Adrian, the co-founder of Streamlit, CEO of Streamlit who is pioneering the next generation of tools for data scientists. Uh, Before this, Dr. Troy, I learned also your your PhD, has been a a VP at Zooks. You were a Google X project lead, professor at CMU. You've given talks around the world, including to the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, numerous awards. We talked a little bit about like your renewed perspective around hiring or around even executive hiring this uh, this idea around clarity and but i guess if you were talking to you know the adrian at day zero of streamlit what are some yeah. of the gems either you know structurally tactically strategically philosophically what are things that you would kind of give to, to that adrian to maybe accelerate yeah. or improve yeah so actually um it's really simple this is a piece of advice that was given to me by uh, the CEO of Confluent, which is a big, you know, um, big software company. And I ended up having, being at a dinner table next to him with a bunch of people. And he gave me this little nugget, which is just so true. So people, especially with execs that are like, I don't want someone too fancy. I don't want, you know, I don't want, what if they change the, you know, ingredients in the soup? What if they're not hungry because they're soup, blah, blah, blah. So how do we, how do we conceptualize like who, what kind of level we want or whatever? So it's really simple. First, you set the bar. It has to be this good. If it's not this good, if it's not above this bar, if it's not just like a really great person, just forget it. Like at any level, it's not going to be worth it. So you say, this is like really great. We're only going to look above that. Then hire the most senior person you can. Who's that good? Hmm. Don't go down and be like, oh, well, it's less and it's more junior, blah, blah, blah. No. If you can't find, if your bar is like, you know, uh, you know, the VP of sales at Coca-Cola or whatever, and you can't find the VP, then maybe go down to director. And then maybe go down. So never change the bar. But once the bar is set, go as high as you can. And the reason is because it's the value of not thinking. It's the value of being able to take a whole chunk of the business and put it in someone else's mind and let them run with it. And then they know a lot more than you anyway. Like literally, they're just going to be making 100x more decisions and better decisions than you possibly can. And you should like just accelerate that as much as possible. I think that's important to know for the difference between bootstrapping a company versus like, hey, I have millions. Let me just go hire people. Totally. Um, and the, I'll say the pace is different too. Like if you, if you, you know, raise millions of dollars and you want to be moving really fast, it's hard to do that with a couple people part-time. So, you know, taking that path, I'd probably advise entrepreneurs to hire people full-time. But the caveat there is that if you don't necessarily know what you want to do and what you're building, more people typically won't solve that problem. (laughs) So clarity of your vision, clarity of the customer problem and the solution that you feel like you validated with the customer. Um, Without that, it's like, it's just more, you know, voices at the table trying to figure it out. Uh, So I I like the idea of 
keeping things fairly small until you feel like you have that traction and clarity on the customer problem and what you want to solve. And then starting to scale up the team, you know, post validation there. What else is important to you about the early hires? You know, because now you've done this a second time and maybe, maybe what you learned too, like lessons you carried over from Pi into, from a team building standpoint, the, the importance of those early ones. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, I think it probably varies, you know, um, very much between companies, but I think at least for what worked for us, one thing is like the early hires have to complement the the founding, you know, kind of teams like various skill sets. Um, I think one thing that's likely consistent though is a level of tenacity and work ethic and also just sort of loyalty to the business. I think all of those attributes are really important in the early days when you're really trying to just get off the ground and you know you might go through you know hard moments where we thought you were gonna you know we thought you were gonna sign a big client and like that falls through or you bring on a bunch of clients and you grow really fast and then you're struggling to support them those are all kind of like very classic I think normal problems that that really small companies have having a team that will stick together in those tough moments is really not something to be uh, taken for granted. And, and I think it's an important thing to look for. But there's obviously all the other qualities of like, you know, hiring people that are smart and like effective, right? Can do the, can do the functions appropriately, uh, are willing to roll up their sleeves, right? Because when you're a tiny startup, uh, you know, only a handful of people, um, everybody really needs to pull their weight and you can't just have, you know, people managing or, you know, kind of just sitting, sitting back and, and waiting for things to get done. What is like the spectrum of ability that you've seen in founders when it comes to the ability to hire? Like, is, is there a, like, what's the, what's the bottom rung? What's the, the top? And, and I guess if there's some like behaviors or patterns that you see among the, the founders that, that really nail this part of the, of the job. Well, without calling anyone out, um, right. there's certainly, you know, first time founders that are excellent at recruiting because they care and you know that they care. Candidates know they care. Like we, as those who partner with them, know that they care. There's also those who are repeat founders that still can't crack it. And um, if you can't, like, hopefully you can hire someone that is actually good at recruiting because I think all good founders should spend at least 50% of their time recruiting. Um, and if they can't, you know, hire for the area that you don't have, which is like how I suggest, like they approach every function that they need to, um, continue to build out. And like, we're pretty hands-on with our portfolio companies. Once we make a series A investment, we're my, myself and Doug will like understand the person's like go to the, the team's go to market strategy, what their like upcoming hiring plan is. And if like, you're looking to hire um, this person by January of next year, you should probably start thinking about them in like summer because it's going to take anywhere from three to six months, especially in this market, to hire someone. And those who can prepare and um, are organized with process tend to be those that can want well, that and like focus and alignment on profile. If anyone tells you this is like the one right way to, to hire people, including what I'm about to say, I don't think there's there's always one right way. I, I, I'm going to describe a framework and I hope the framework works for you and for uh, you know other folks that uh, want to hire, um, this is what uh, what's worked for me. First, I mean, I think the reason we're doing this podcast is, uh, you know, we agree that, uh, you know, people are uh, a company's uh, greatest asset and that it's harder than ever to hire these days, both because, you know, big tech are paying amazing salaries to folks that we haven't really seen before. Salaries have grown a bunch. And also there's more startups than ever getting bigger valuations than ever when they're raising. So it's, it's really hard to hire. And uh, I think when facing a problem like this, I think we actually want to solve it with an engineering mindset. So just like uh, when you're building uh, a new feature or a new system with, uh, at, at work with, you know, with code, um, you, know, you, you pick your language, you pick your architecture, you pick what systems you want to build on, whether it's EC2 or Google Cloud or whatever. 
I think you can apply that same engineering mindset to the complex system of hiring. I think hiring is a machine that can be uh, designed, architected, built, improved upon. There's going to be bugs. There's going to be um, escalations mm. and, and outages uh, that, that you need to go fix. So the engineering mindset summarized in a couple of points. First is, you know, there's a problem we want to solve, whether it's a feature to build or a bug to fix. And it's important to understand what problem are we solving? What are the goals? Uh, what metrics are we moving? What does success look like? And then you want to think through potential solutions. Step two, what, what are these solutions? Brainstorm with people, um, write up uh, some summaries. Then you want to pick, here's where we're going to go. So step three is what we picked and how we're going to do it. So what's the chosen solution? What are the pros and cons, the trade-off against other solutions? Um, and then there's building it at step four, which involves a migration plan. You don't just switch from say having your system in Python to having your system in Go. You might rebuild different pieces at different times. Or even if you do rebuild the entire thing, you don't just do like one cutover. Um, there might be that runs in shadow mode or something like that up front. So um, you know, how does that apply to hiring? Well, you know, a problem you might want to solve is I need to hire 20 engineers in a quarter. Uh, you know, or three engineers by Easy. you know the end of the month. <laughs> what are the things that obviously there's like a technical competence that you're going for, but what are the other things that you were looking for that made you know, yeah, the criteria that made those hires meaningful? I would say probably the ability to gel well with the team to be able to understand the core mission, um, and that mission being kind of democratizing access to this new alternative asset class that uh, you know, previously was not available to people as a whole. I think also just we had a very specific culture, a little bit more engineering driven, a little bit more heads down um, and being able to kind of mesh well with all of the different strong personalities was incredibly important. I think I talked to one founder who was like, you know, diversity is fantastic, but early on you actually want homogeneity. Like you want everybody to be more alike than different at the beginning because it just like makes everything easier, faster. Like, what do you think of that? I guess. Yeah. I think it's like, you want homogeneity in certain ways, right? So you want homogeneity in terms of like overall mission alignments. Um, you want homogeneity in terms of um, just like being able to work well with everyone. So like everybody should be at least like some base level of agreeable, right? I think you also want a lack of homogeneity in terms of like, where do various people excel, right? So like, for instance, hire for spikiness is a, a phrase that is commonly said. Yeah, I would say that it's, it's a balance. So homogeneity where it is important to be aligned on the same things, but also you want diversity when it comes to things like skill sets and different experiences and whatnot. What is kind of your number pro number one priority in that engagement at the beginning to, to make sure that we step on the good foot? The cliche and, and uh, you know, got this from Jeff Stump, who I worked for uh, for three years under uh, A16Z. This is a measure twice, cut once type of business for executive search. When we look over the body of completed work that we've done, these projects have 300, 400, in some cases, 700 profiles in, in the project, 700 people that we've contacted for the search. When you're going after uh, candidates like this, it, there's going to be a significant body of effort that is required upfront. And so you better know which direction you're supposed to be going, because if you head in the wrong direction, you're just going to have to redo all of that work and you're going to take you're going to make it very painful for yourself and for the client. If you can find alignment, we like to use the phrase mutual truth. The quicker we can get to mutual truth in terms of what the founder wants and thinks we can get and what we want and think we can get, the quicker we can achieve an outcome. And I think that we like to say that first 30 days is really the audition period. Within 30 days, you should know if the partnership is working well, you know, to, to, to avoid having to pay invoices that you don't feel that the, the search firm has earned. 
30 days should be plenty of time to discern whether the search firm understands your search, uh, is being an effective partner, is managing pipeline well, and is bringing you qualified candidates, uh, and that it's getting better week by week. That's kind of what we look for in, in the beginning innings to, to make sure it's, it's heading in the right direction. That was true two weeks ago. Uh, that wasn't true five years ago. You know, so we had seven people and we were, you know, we were deep in it working on the MVP while we were raising our, our first seat. Right. So that was that was super useful. And yeah, you know, you got to pick the right skill set. So we had some really hardcore engineers join up and, you know, having Michael on, on team was amazing because he was he was out selling to retailers before we even had a code written, right? So it's like, you know, we had another founder who was, you know, super ops oriented, who was building out our lab spaces. And, you know, it was just, it was a team effort from day one. And that was cool. But but I think the most important thing is it's got to be a team that jams, you know, you got to, you got to work together. There's no room for personality conflicts. Actually, I think I did an okay job of that, but my first startup didn't really prepare me because you know, just by sheer luck of the draw, we all loved working. It was like such a harmonious, you know, we were in it. Right. We right. like, it was so harmonious. It was actually the SEC the first time that I learned about, you know, politics, <laughs> office politics, right. toxic personalities. Not, not that the SEC is a bad place. It's a great place. It's just, in, you know, anytime you get thousands of people together, there's going to be some bad yeah. stuff. How do you walk a founder through that idea maze? Because I'm sure you encounter that kind of trap all the time of people trying to, you know, I guess, quantify a person based on, on track record. Yeah. And it's a good question. So it's always a journey. I think, I think search, the search business is just a journey. Yeah. <laughs> Specifically maybe for a founder that's less calibrated. I think that question would apply to, we all do our best to write down the job description, which I think is not great because job descriptions are super generic. Uh, a lot of people use that book, the who mission outcomes, competencies. I think that's super helpful. But what I think is most helpful is like, what do you want this person to do? And as a recruiter, it's my job to find the evidence in someone's background that supports those outcomes and and, and what we want this person to do. And then there's culture fit. And, and then there's other little intricacies that founders are hung up on. And so whether it's getting them off of some of those things or getting them calibrated, how I take them through the journey is like, I absolutely go after exactly what we're looking for. Like as a recruiter, I'm hyper, hyper targeted. I've been in the game too long that like, I know so much about companies DNA, you know, um, that like we know, I know where greatness has lived. And um, so I go after the very, you know, obvious suspects, but actually I think there's a part in the search and maybe that's after like week three or four, where I think getting creative. And maybe that's like, oh God, I just did a search for a firm that builds litigation software. And I thought, well, what if I could find someone in SaaS that actually has a law degree? I know that's so obvious. Okay. I'm not saying that's creative, but (laughs) like, but the person didn't have something that we absolutely had as an outcome. So I think like you have to get creative and show founders the parallels of other possibilities of talent that you can recruit because that's when the magic starts happening, especially in some functions like marketing, for example. And I'm just going to use that as an example because marketing is so broad and squishy that you think you need a product marketer to fill this VP of marketing role and you end up hiring a demand gen marketer. Well, that that is like the bipolar opposite of the, of the search that we were doing. And how did that happen? Why did that happen? Well, 
where I'm going with this is as a recruiter, I try to show founders what they didn't ask for. And I try to give them a little bit more of a salad bar approach around the, the profiles and the people. Sometimes fit trumps all, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Anyway, there's some like-mindedness in this person and this founder. The marketing comment was just like, how do we hire the bipolar opposite? Well, you know, this person had like some very special qualities that set them apart from the rest that resonated well with the founder and whether it's domain expertise and or I went to the same school. I know that's terrible to say. Especially now at almost 400 people, we are still, um, you know, I think not quite a startup, but growing rapidly, but you need to be able to continue building and, and having, I think that foundational ecosystem that people can communicate effectively, can uh, execute well together as a team, make decisions. And sometimes you need to align, get on the same page and really work on the, the ability to communicate and see people's perspectives. So having people who can speak the multiple languages embedded in the team, it just helps improve uh, the ability to grow and scale as the culture in itself, I think, becomes that natural bridge. Um, and people become, you know, in our case, a freenomer where they can speak the freenome language over time. That doesn't happen overnight. And it starts by hiring people who really can be at that uh, nexus of multiple disciplines because they're the ones who can, you know, really be the interpreters and the guides um, to help empower multiple teams, just be a more effective, integrated, you know, cross-functional organization. What is the criteria that you followed when selecting your team for Rackhouse? Because it's different than, you know, building yeah, a product sure. or working on a technology segment of a larger business. like. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting you, you mentioned that. I mean, we're we're a small fund and and uh, you know the team is correspondingly quite small, but it there are some very conceptual parallels to finding a great investor as there is to finding a great data scientist, which is sort of my my most common recruiting task sort of prior to all of this. In that when you're hiring a data person, right, or a data scientist, data analyst, you know, um there's sort of this combination of two skill sets or sort of two axes, I think, of when you think about recruiting, which is to be really good at data, you need to have domain expertise in like three or four really important domains, right? You need to have like a really good understanding of statistics and probability and underlying mathematics. You need to have a better than passing familiarity with programming and programming concepts. You need to have, you know, sort of machine learning or operations research or like whatever advanced math domain there is. And then you need to have like the soft skills of, can you talk to people who are not domain experts? Can you present written oral, you know, all of the, the, you know, can you take everything that's like, you know, obvious in your brain and like make a team better with it, all of that communication. And so when I was assessing and hiring data scientists, you would kind of go through the earlier kind of middle phases of the invest or the recruiting process was, assessing each of those skills individually, right? And then the later stages was kind of shifting to the other axis, which is, can you like string all of those skills together in a way which actually like delivers results? And can you, you know, like, yes, you can program and yes, you can communicate well, but then could you pair program well with a non-data scientist? Do you have kind of thoughts around, you know, like when when do you bring in the first recruiter or how should they think about the third party services versus in-house? And to me, it's all a, it's, it's a little, little bit of a math equation, but um, it can also be kind of the, 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 this type of math where you're kind of using your get best 
uh, guesses, but for me, it's all ROI. So that's the conversation I have with our founders time and time again. It's actually the most common conversation I've been having since I've started, which is the common problem people come across is like, how do I create pipeline, right? Where do I spend my time across all of the areas that I can be spending my time? Where do I start? What's the right amount of time um, and everything in between? And I think there's a, there's a balance between, um, actually, it's less of a balance, I think. When you're at this stage, what you're really optimizing for is quality candidates. Honestly, at some point, it becomes a, a little bit of a volume game. So at um, Instacart, when we were trying to hire, you know, 700 engineers in a year, like we really have to distill this thing down to a math equation that said, if we want to hire 700 uh, people by the end of the year, we need to make this many offers, you know, this many on-sites, this many text screens, this many phone screens, this much outreach. We need the composition of funnel by source. We need conversion rates. We knew, uh, you know, average speed to hire uh, activity that needed to happen at each stage per day. Like that's how precise you break it down to. Wow. That level of precision, I don't think is necessary at this early stage. You know, when you're finding and hiring your first couple people, it really is about quality because you only need to make one or two hires, right? So you don't need to generate 10 amazing candidates. You really need two or three. And so where you should be spending your time are the areas or the work that bring you those best two or three candidates for each of the roles you're hiring. What I typically encourage founders to do is focus on the specific areas of the funnel that are going to drive the highest quality with the least amount of effort. Um, Because there are a lot of high effort activities like sourcing, for example, that you can generate really high quality candidates, but it's a shit ton of work to get there. Meaning, you know, if I need to source a hundred great candidates for a role because I anticipate a response rate of 10% at best, in order to source that quality of candidate, send all of those emails, follow through with all those people to get those couple candidates that are gonna be great, there are probably a lot faster ways that you can do that, um, where you can improve on your th- response rates, um, on your quality hit rate. We hear that that founders are spending at least 50% of their time recruiting. How accurate was that for you across this six months? I, would, I have to go back and check my calendar, but I, I, I think that's totally right. Nowadays, I probably spend even more than 50% of my time recruiting. I, I think it is one of the most important things. And so what, what was that? Was that a explicit process between you and him of getting those values, you know, on paper or front and center in the interview process? And, and what did that look like? Or how did that come about? Yeah, we, we did. We spent a lot of time together kind of thinking through what do we want our guiding principles to be? What should we look for? How should we structure our hiring process and our hiring playbook? How can we incorporate those guiding principles and values into our interview process? writing it all down, putting blog posts out there, putting hiring pages out there. We spent a lot wow. of time doing that. And John, John, like John really cares about these values too. So yeah, it was, it was really important for us to, to do this together and like get it written down and communicate it in a really effective way. And to be honest, I was very surprised by how impactful that has been at the mm-hmm. time. I was kind of like, Oh, like their values, like every company has values. And like, right. you know, do people actually care about this? Like everyone wants to have excellence and whatever, yeah. but I think it, 
it is absolutely game-changing. It's super helpful for hiring, super helpful for internally just reflecting on what are we actually trying to do here? Where are we willing to sacrifice versus where will we, where will we like toe the line to the, you yeah. know, to the, to the end? Um, it's been really helpful to have that all written down and like collaborated on together. What has this looked like from the hiring side? Like what, how, how have hiring strategies evolved over the course of your career as a CEO? Nigel, what a great question, because I think this might be the one area that maybe has changed more than any other area over the last 25 years, 30 years since I've been doing it. The one thing I would say is that when I first came into the business, I think the kind of hiring that was done was leaders generally did the most lazy thing possible, which was to hire in their own image. Um, They, they kind of hired people to look like them that maybe even went to the same schools or had, uh, you know, some of the same background for sure. There was sort of this comfort zone around, well, you know, I'm going to, at the risk of sounding like, uh, you know, using a, a, a Trumpism, you know, I'm going to go find somebody that came out of central casting and you know, <laughs> that's radically changed over time. Thank God. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's just, that's just not at all the way I've ever done it. And I, I think most of the best companies have understood now for some time that we need to be hiring a diverse group of folks that, frankly, can complement each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I know as, as a, in, in, in my CEO jobs, I've really worked hard to figure out, so how do I go find some people that have skills and abilities that really are complementary to my own, you know, that, that where they bring some, some strengths and some experience that I don't already bring? And conversely, where in areas where they're looking to have an experience and and to build some capability of their own, those are areas where I know I can help them, you know, where where I know this is going to be a a heavy duty kind of a learning opportunity for them as well. And that's really, I think, a a big change for for not just me and the the stuff I've been doing with, with my companies, but I think just in general, I think people have recognized that it's actually the the force multiplier of how we all come together as a team that you're trying to get right. It's not necessarily trying to, you know, in lemming style, just bring people in that kind of look like you do operate like you do. And where you sort of think that uh, you make the mistake of thinking actually that, that, you know, somehow you're going to have, you're going to be able to work in shorthand with those folks, which of course is not the case. What drives the shorthand, what drives, you know, the seamless integrated, uh, collaboration of a great team is the culture. It's the shared values, the shared perspective that we have about what we're building. That's the thing that makes that happen. So anyway, I think that's kind of what's what's changed over the course of the last two or three decades. You talked a little bit about this culture piece. You know, what is the culture and the cultural thesis that you started with that nuance and, and how have you built that into your your process? Sure. Where we started was in really thinking about coming from a place of empathy in the searches we're doing, right? Like, I, I think there's some friction between engineers and recruiters and <laughs> some of it well-deserved, some of it not. But I think, you know, understanding that, first of all, someone's career decision is a huge decision, right? It's yeah. one of the biggest changes they can make in their life. Yeah. Um, and we shouldn't underestimate that. As well as on hiring team side, right? Especially, you know, if you're talking to a team of five and they're hiring their sixth person, that sixth person, it's going to be a big deal. Or you're talking to a first time manager who is growing their team for the first time. Like 
you know, there are real stakes to them making that decision. And I think when you have empathy on, on both of those fronts, it only helps with this. Internally, we call it empathy as a default. We also, and I, I talked about this earlier with time killing enthusiasm and my obsession with it, but, <laughs> um, you know, we define that as like high urgency always, you know, mm-hmm. understanding that time will get in the way of a lot of these deals and also understanding that, you know, when somebody has brought us in, it's probably because someone has more work than people. Uh, mm-hmm. It's because someone is, you know, missing dinner with their kid because they need help because they're, you know, up late doing something or they're missing out on growth for their own business because they don't have the right team to support it, right? Like there are real stakes there. And so those are the the, the ways that we've framed those in asking our team to, to stay engaged. Yeah, like the offer should be the easiest part and so oh, almost absolutely. like, you know, you want to be warming them up and getting them into conviction. So by the time you extend that thing, it, it you've made it so easy for them to say yes to it. Yeah, do all that up front, but you got to drip it. Like I've seen people totally front load the cell Right. You got nothing to talk about all the way through. Right. Yeah. There's one person, and I'm not going to mention that person's name, but they know they do it. I don't work with them anymore. Um, but like front load the crap out of it and then have nothing to sell. Wow. And then over promise a bunch of stuff and then fall out. And you talked about the cadence and like the rhythm of that, of, uh, I, you know, there's something to say about the dance between assessing and selling. Mm-hmm. And like knowing when to do that, because we've seen the reverse too, where they're assessing so hard at the front, but they haven't sold the candidate on why they should continue interviewing to begin with. Yeah. You know, and they're just getting grilled, just like full on interrogation in the first conversation, you know, which is crazy to me, right? Like is at that point, you've made it somewhat of a confrontational in- engagement where, yeah. you know, and I know, I know a lot of really good engineers that are like, yeah, I'll, and I've, I've seen it where they've just like, Anything you throw at me, I'm going to be able to solve. Mm-hmm. And now it's just turned into a game show for them, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and they don't even care about the prize at the end. What was it about his skill set that really just resonated with you beyond the shared vision, shared value pieces? Yeah, Aaron really became like more than I was even setting out to find. I was looking for kind of like an engineering lead, right? We were like team of two at that time with some contractors, right? I mean, (laughs) you know, we were very small. Um, What I saw when I I met him that I recognized was even better than what I'd been looking for was um, a real entrepreneur, Hmm. Um, which is um, he's incredibly technically skilled, um, but he almost doesn't let that get in the way of him being able to think really creatively and just ship product. So the thing that he loves to do, and I think this is really important for your early engineering hires and becomes different as you start to scale out your engineering team is you're looking for people who just love to ship, Hmm. who have an idea and who say like, gosh, I just, I couldn't help myself. I got so excited about this. I just, I stayed up all night and I just built an MVP and I got to show you what this looks like. And so people who are a bit of a polymath can be really helpful in those very early stages too, who can do some of the design themselves, who can do some of the product direction as well as building. You're not looking for someone who's like, the most excellent version of any one of those three. You're looking for someone where those those things combined can be really magical and special um, in that very early hire. And then as you build out your engineering team over time, then you want to start to look for a bit more. Like we started adding what I call engineers, engineers. Right. People who are going to start beating the table and be upset that you don't have automated testing. Right. Yeah. Those are not the same people who like are just designing and coding and like kind of building stuff themselves really quickly and like hopping on the phone with a customer to show them. Right. Do you feel like 
between your last company and this company that the importance you put on recruiting as a function of yours as a founder, has there been a, a shift in like how you regard the recruiting function? You know, as talent people, we see, you know, hiring leaders as solving a business, like solving a business problem with talent is how is kind of how we put it. And yeah, yeah. do you feel it sounds like that's maybe how you see it today. But did you always see it like that? Like, how did it fit into your worldview back then versus yeah, this time? I around? think I think as you, your career progresses, you know, hopefully you get like maybe more strategic and, and, and wise over time. I think at the beginning, it was all about survival. And I think in my career, but also like in the life of a company, like at the beginning, it's all about survival. Like yeah. You're uh, just trying to make ends meet and not run out of money and, and out of energy and motivation. I think as the years went by with the first company, recruiting started being more of a priority because we saw we had money and we saw bottlenecks that we could alleviate if we had more people. And so kind of naturally, it just felt like a growth hack almost, right? We, yeah, really yeah, people, yeah. we grow the business. Like that's going to be very clear. So I think naturally from that, it, it started becoming a priority. But I think it was in this company over the past five, six years that I truly like stepped into it more of not only our, our responsibility, but like, a, like this unique craft. Mm. that I think like has so much like David in the details and so much nuance yeah and it, and it's almost like the I feel like it's the intersection of many disciplines it's recruiting but beneath it like if you unpack it there's so many things that come together how should teams and early stage teams really approach um like is it something where you think that it's just most effective to go out and find a trainer and bring someone into a company does it start with first principles at the founder level and saying, Hey, this is what I do. This is what you need to do. Or, you know, is it, is it something that you just figure out as you go along? I mean, I think the, the, the simple answer to your two questions are yes and yes, right? Yes. Yeah. It starts kind of with first principles or I'll talk about how we, how we think about it. And it starts with the founder saying, this is what I do. This is what I need you to do. This is what I need you to do. And I don't need you to do any of these other things. Right. Right. So, so especially with an early stage company too, you want to be careful to not lay down a ton of process. You don't need right. a ton of process, right? You really, really don't. Um, and you don't want to overthink it, but you need some structure, right? A, yeah. a, a recruiting process and an interview process itself has to have some structure. And so this is not my original idea, but no. Pete Clark's uh, um, always presents the, the beginning of the process uh, as let's think about it as product management what is the problem we are trying to solve? Because you mm. wouldn't go build a product without understanding what's the problem you're trying to solve. And so I don't, I don't think you should hire somebody without really understanding what is the problem? What's the business problem you're trying to solve? You're trying to do it with the application of a person, which makes it a little tricky because it turns right. out people have their own ideas. But if you, if you really start, to me, that's the first principle, right? What's the problem we're trying to solve? We have... Uh, we have a demand gen issue. Our right. product is breaking. The team isn't scaling. We're not closing our books on time. We don't understand where our revenue is coming from. Where Start with the fundamentals of what's the problem and then begin to scope a role around the problem as, as opposed to deciding we need to fill a role and then build a job description backwards from there. So we I always like to start with, what are the three or four things that you need this person to do? Yes, we can write a crazy, yeah. beautiful job description. But what are the three or four per things that we need this person to do? And start from that. 
And then we spend a little bit of time, like what I like to do in my role as talent partner is help founders to calibrate. Okay, you need somebody who's gonna come and help your company do this and fix this particular problem and do that thing. So let me go find a few people in our network who've done those kinds of things right. and talk to them about how and, and where were they in their career and what kind of people did they have, right? And then the founder can sort of calibrate around, oh, maybe this is what I need, right? So there's a founder who's figured out what are the problems and what kind of person do I need? There's yeah. your there's your job description, right? <laughs> yeah. So great, you started the front end, then you hire Brian Bokino and build talent and they'll start building pipeline for you and bring you people who approximate that job description. But the problem with those things is that unicorns are very hard to find. There has been a lot of innovation in the uh, recruiting space. Uh, it was all about uh, video interviewings a few a few years ago, and now I feel this has disappeared. Mostly, it's not so much about innovation, but just doing things right. If you have a good interviewing process, if you are very responsive to candidates, if you have a good candidate experience, you're being transparent, you share the salary range, you share what the work, what it will look like. You can, you can use a dedicated tool, obviously, to help with scheduling. So we've seen much more scheduling tools or candidate experience tools to explain. Uh, there's one called guide.code that I uh, really like that shows a lot of transparency to the candidate about the interviewing process. But mostly it's not so much about bringing that new innovation rather than staying organized on top of things, uh, tracking everything. It feels like people are a bit moving away from that very shiny uh, new innovation, AI, uh, chatbots, yeah. uh, video interviewing. I know it's about being very humane, very personal in the interview process. And then there are a lot of things that come from this then. Um, the first step is the, the first touch point that you have with a candidate. How do you do this? So that can be either through a job post online, that can be through outreach if you're doing outreach over email or LinkedIn, or that can be through a third party if you work with a, with a hiring agency. So you need to have this all lined up and very clear and keep on iterating to improve this. So track all your data. And I can share a lot of tips on also on how to improve this initial stage, like how to get more candidates to your job postings, how to get more replies to your outreach. So there is a lot to say. And I believe most of the innovation will come here. Um, and it's not so much about finding the right person now than getting them to reply. The Gradients is brought to you by Build Talent. To find out more about us, head to buildtalent.io. And make sure to search for The Gradients in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Click follow so you don't miss out on any future episodes. And on behalf of everyone here at Build, thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.